Welcome, friends, to the show. My name is Eric Wright. I am going to be your host for the Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you could do us a favor, make sure you do subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, on Stitcher, and in fact, on any podcast app where you want to go. So just head over to discopossepodcast.com. You can grab the URL and go from there. Uh, this episode is brought to you by our very cool friends over at Veeam Software. Veeam is the ultimate dream for data protection needs. Uh, see what I did there? It rhymes. So when you want to get your Veeam dream underway, whether you want to back up your on-premises, your cloud, your SaaS, even your container native infrastructure for cloud native on Kubernetes, wicked cool stuff. I'm a big fan of the platform and of the team. I've been using them for a long time, both in production environments and, and they've been sponsors and, and supporters of the blog and our technology community for a long time. So please do give a shout out to the folks at Veeam. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and you can actually uh, grab a hold of your own very special intro code. So jump on in. Again, it's vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. This is also brought to you by Velocity Closing. One of the things I've been doing through work is noticing that as people fail to reach closure and move deals effectively through from demos, uh, I wanted to be able to help them close that gap. So if you go to velocityclosing.com, you can download the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. It's wicked cool. I'm a fan. I wrote it. I also did the audiobook. So uh, get in there now. We get a special. You get the audiobook and an upcoming course. Today's show features Gabe Luna Ostaseski. Gabe is the co-founder of Braintrust. So you can check them out at getbraintrust.com. But you're going to want to dig into this episode because Gabe shares a ton of lessons about making those early decisions in, in founding companies, the value and advantage of two-sided marketplaces. It is just a ton of great startup lessons, sales lessons, and he's just a fantastic conversationalist. It was a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hi, my name is Gabe Luna Ostaseski. I'm the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Braintrust. You're joining the Disco Posse podcast. Uh, Gabe, thank you very much for joining today because I know you've inevitably got a schedule that most of us would be frightened by. Uh, you're a busy, busy human. Uh, you're doing some fantastic stuff. And we're going to jump into kind of what what that is and, and go into some history. But just to get people started, Gabe, if you want to introduce yourself and and talk quickly, let's sort of jump into the brain trust story and, and we'll, we'll work our way from there. Yeah, sure. So I, I've been in investor and entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley since I was 18 years old. That's when I started my first business. Uh, so started my first company at, at 18, had kind of a mild exit at, at 21. And then I immediately started a marketplace for home services, which was called Modernize. And essentially what we were doing was connecting consumers that were looking for home service professionals uh, with those home service professionals on the other side. So I was the co-founder of that company. Um, and then uh, the, we actually grew it and, and then it was acquired. Uh, and after about two weeks of, of sitting around the house, my wife kicked me out of the house and said, you gotta, gotta get out of here and go and help <laughs> or do something. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you can't sit here anymore. And so I started investing and advising in other two-sided marketplaces in Silicon Valley. Um, so all in all, um, I did about 40 different uh, two-sided marketplace investments and, ad and advisory roles. Uh, ranging from ride sharing, you know, through insurance and other home service categories. So had a, a front row seat to seeing how, you know, these two-sided marketplaces can be built and scaled. And then, uh, and then decided to get back together with a, a long-term friend of mine, uh, Adam Jackson and co-found Braintrust. And we co-founded the company in 2018. And, and I've been um, primarily focused on, on that since then. Now, the, the marketplace is a very interesting area, and I'm finding, obviously, we're, we're more used to it now, I think, as consumers uh, realizing the value of being connected through marketplaces. And like I said, this, not just a single marketplace, but a two-sided marketplace. So how did, 
how did you recognize that that was an area where you had a chance to to do something that was really you know, scalable when when you kind of first got started in that two-sided marketplace idea? You know, I, I think that if I go back in the rewind machine, it was it was probably naivete that got me involved in it, <laughs> like youth and naivete. Um, meaning, at at the time, there wasn't a whole lot. There wasn't a huge proliferation of two-sided marketplaces. Maybe you had eBay and things like that, but you obviously have seen it quite a bit of growth in the last decade. At the time, we just thought about as building a business. Um, and geez, if I knew how hard it was to build a two-sided marketplace. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I would have gone down that path, but I think after doing it, after, after kind of doing the first one, you see how powerful these businesses can become. And you also see how challenging they are to build. And so you kind of have a lens and a perspective and you start to see the world in that way and see other opportunities, you know, to, to build two-sided marketplaces in other categories. It, it's interesting that when you bring that up, that, Right, now it seems very obvious, but especially, you know, when we look back on on how a lot of these things got started, you know, we we effectively coin a phrase. It becomes a thing of like you were the, the the Uber of this or the Cadillac of that or whatever. Like there's always like some comparative that that we put on there. But before that, there was actually plenty of two-sided marketplaces that had made the attempt. And of course, obviously, you know. Uh, Uber is an example of one that we saw that, that grew to, to massive visibility and awareness. Uh, but prior to that, like you said, so when you were going through it, did you, did you have the intent that you very much wanted to simply create the marketplace opportunity for both sides? Did you start with focus on one side and you realized it was variable on, on either side? I'm curious in the as the product and the idea evolved into ultimately, I guess, what would be, would become modernized. Yeah. So the, I think it came from pretty humble origins, right? Like my first business when I was in college was like a, a house painting company. Um, and, and what I saw in that was of course that like the biggest limitation to us growing was being able to get more customers or get more leads. And I, I think I also saw that I didn't want to be in the house painting business long-term. And, and so the genesis of the idea was, hey, what, what if instead of like generating leads for one company or generating customers for one company, you could essentially, you know, find customers for many different companies. And like that sounded like a more interesting business to be in at the time was like, I want to be in the marketing and lead generation business versus being in that, you know, scraping and painting houses business. Um, and so I think originally that's kind of where it started. We, we said, hey, can we can we go out there and actually find other homeowners or find customers that are interested in getting a variety of work done, whether it be painting or roofing or windows uh, on their houses? And then can we essentially go out there and find contractors that are willing to pay to be introduced to those customers? And so when we first started, I mean, this, <laughs> this sounds silly right now, but when we first started the business, we, we literally went out on a Saturday with yellow pads of paper and convinced our girlfriends and called in favors with other friends. So to launch the company, we went out on a Saturday with yellow notepads and pens, and we just walked around neighborhoods and asked homeowners if they wanted to get any work done on their houses. At the time, we didn't have a website. We didn't even have a name for the company. We were essentially just validating this idea. And then turns out, like we actually got like 25 names that first day of homeowners. We got names and phone numbers and addresses of people that wanted to get roofing or painting or windows installed in their houses. And then the next day we just opened up the yellow pages and we started calling contractors and saying, Hey, you know, would you be interested in trying to get connected with homeowners that want to get work done? And they said, yes. And we set up a bunch of meetings. And in the first day we, you know, we actually signed the first four customers. Um, and each of them actually gave us a check on the spot to be connected with each one of those homeowners. And that was actually the, like our seed money. We, we literally uh, proved the business model and also the, we proved that people were willing to pay to get to kind of like operate. And it, we didn't even call it a marketplace at the time, but, uh, but that's kind of how we validated the model and also how we started generating revenue on day one. 
Well, and that's a, it is a wonderful thing, especially those first ones, the, you know, like revenue funded uh, through the first portion. And it's, it's quite amazing, really, if you think about that, like you, you literally go hand to hand and like, let's do this. And, and in hindsight, it's, it's funny that we just realized like all somebody had to do was, was ask it's, there's often many opportunities that are out there, but just no one's willing to do the, the footwork and go out there. And then from there, then you can systematize that and and you know the, the formula sounds easy except for the footwork the idea and the willingness to put the time and effort in which is where you and the team actually really made the difference right yeah i think you know sometimes people let kind of the trying to do it perfectly or trying to do it you know elaborately stand in the way of just getting started and and so much of, I think of, of early entrepreneurship is actually just validating the idea, like as fast as possible, validating whether people want what you think that they want. And in, in most cases we're wrong about that. And so I, I kind of look at like, what's the speed to yes or no, like how fast can I validate or invalidate the idea that I have? Cause they're just ideas, right? And, and until they, until those ideas interact with the market or interact with customers, they can stay in the world of ideas. You bring up an interesting point too of we, we carry our beliefs far further than they should go without validation. And especially in the startup world, I find you also get the, the sophomore curse inside you know, in happens in music, it happens in all of these things where they, the first one's like, hey, this is a hit. So if I just then go into the ivory tower, come up with a second idea, I can just sell that thing to my existing customers. And in fact, we didn't do the validation. We didn't have the sort of stay hungry mentality that got us that first idea and execution. So I find that it's very easy for people to get lost on really getting in front of the people that you need to, you know, have used the platform and tell you or a service or whatever it's going to be. Uh, and uh, Catherine Schultz is sort of famous for this one. She does a Ted talk called on being wrong and she, she has a book about it as well. And we as humans really struggle with, we, we are way too pot committed to our ideas before we accept that I, this is actually a bad idea in motion. <laughs> and so I'm curious in your in your first art, you were successful. You got that seed. You got your first four customers. So now what did the next sort of little mini phase look like as you took this a little further? Yes. Yeah, so the funny thing is that uh, we just actually did the same thing. So the next weekend, uh, we just had some more friends come out with us and had our girlfriends come out and we got more leads. And then we did this basically rinsed and repeated. And we actually did this up till we probably did this for four or five months. Um, and essentially every weekend, I mean, this, this sounds silly, like now that I've built tech companies, but the, the, we basically built the business in the beginning, which was we take the yellow notepads out, we go walk around, we get leads of homeowners that want to get work done. We take them back. We essentially type them into a computer, into Excel, and then we would fax the names <laughs> to, <laughs> to the contractors and, and they would actually send us a check back. Right. And, and it's funny, like we, we actually did that up to maybe we got the business up to maybe $400,000 in, in revenue, just doing that super rudimentary process. And then, and then maybe six or eight months in, we were like, maybe what's this internet thing? Like maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe we don't have to knock on doors. Like maybe there's a better way to do this. Um, and, and so we started experimenting with online advertising and we started experimenting with Google AdWords, et cetera. And, and slowly kind of weaned ourselves off of knocking on doors every single weekend and, and moved to be more of an online business. But it, it wasn't immediate. And there was a lot of lessons learned actually in doing things that kind of like didn't scale in the early days and, and getting that system to work before we try to you know operate at a big big scale or do a bunch of volume that's definitely one of the areas that i would love to explore with you gabe because we 
you know, all of our listeners, a lot of our listeners are, are in startups, they're in growing you know, growth stage companies. And we find this real problem of repeating early successes is one thing. Scaling those early successes is a secondary thing. And we have, it's very much a cart horse challenge. And often once you hit a particular scale, it's no longer linear. You are, you are really are changing the approach. So what were some of those things that you figured out and most likely the hard way. And actually I've, I've watched a lot of your content and I appreciate that you you're very good and transparent about talking about you've made a slew of mistakes. However, here's what they are. And, and this is what I've learned as a result of them, which is, is good. It's refreshing because we sort of get hung up on the hero numbers, but the best thing you can do to get to those is to acknowledge and, and learn from the, the challenges along the way. Yeah. So let's see. I mean, I, I think if I relate it to marketplaces, I think we now have kind of a terminology for this at the time we didn't, there, there wasn't like a, a vernacular for marketplaces um, or like the, the KPIs of marketplaces or what you're trying to do when you're first starting a marketplace. But essentially we, the, the first challenge that we ran into was balancing supply and demand. Right. So we had, let's say, 10 homeowners that wanted to get windows done and one person that wanted electrical done and one person that wanted whatever, some four other fencing done and someone that wanted landscaping done. So then we needed to essentially match that with supply right, like of, of contractors and make sure you had the right mix in the right zip codes in the right areas. Um, that was a lot easier to do because we were like a, a local and geo specific and also we were knocking on doors, right? Um, you can imagine if you're doing that online and you're getting all these different requests in all of these different places around the United States, it would be very, very hard to have liquidity and have the right balance of supply and demand. And that's, that's like one of the core challenges of, of marketplaces is building liquidity so that it's a great experience for both sides. It, this is the... You you often see a lot of companies that begin very much as like the you're the local the local laundromat board you know the the town square kind of uh, things that are very localized and you can it's a manageable market place because you know consumers are not physically far providers are not physically far not too terrible to put them together and you can go from geo to geo if you have local representation so when when you started to move geographically beyond your boundary uh, where you could reach and grab that yellow paper and, and go visit people, when, when did you, what was sort of that first thing where you realized, I don't know that we're ready to be in this geo or, or, I'm, or we're about to face a problem as we scale? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, in the, in the beginning, we just kind of were going, it, it was almost like little town by little town, right? Like I'm talking about like micro geos, like, you know, if you took a county and you kind of broke that county down into all the little towns, we were kind of going town by town um, because it didn't really benefit us to spend a bunch of time and energy going out there and you know, like sourcing more demand in markets where we didn't have the right balance of supply because essentially we couldn't we couldn't monetize. And so we, it, it, it's funny, the the fact that we didn't, that we did this totally offline, right? That we like literally were knocking on doors was the thing that enabled us to get the business to be profitable immediately because we had really good liquidity. Essentially we had, we could micro target essentially the contractors in those neighborhoods using the yellow pages. And we could micro target the neighborhoods that the contractors wanted to work in via door knocking, right? So it's, it was like a, it looks really silly in the rear view mirror, but when I, when I look back on it, it was the thing that enabled us to get profitable really, really quickly. And also the thing that helped us to understand the most basic fundamental in marketplaces, which is how to build liquidity for, for both sides and how to build quality liquidity. Meaning the, the, the people in one neighborhood might want different kinds of contractors than the people in other neighborhoods. So we kind of learned that at a micro scale, which we then used to extrapolate when we started to go, you know, I'll say like 
it felt crazy to go from one town to the next. And then it felt nuts for us to go like to another county. And then it felt crazy to go like to another part of the state and then to another state. And, and actually we just went in that very organic way to then become, you know, the, the largest privately held uh, home services marketplace in the country and, and operating nationwide. So it, it started from very, very humble beginnings. And for that reason, it's the, those roots carry through. And I find that, yeah, and I, I'm curious in your thoughts, because you've been involved, especially with advisory and, and talking with a lot of people, that really feels to me like the playing out of where vision and mission are core. And as you scale, it's always done with that core vision and mission throughout. Because if you lose that, it's the fastest way I find to lose an understanding of what you're actually doing. And if you lose that mission and that vision, then things fall apart for a variety of reasons. But being able to take that and now gently, you know, or even, even rapidly, but at least to carry that through in your experiences, Gabe, what did you find, did that feel like what you were doing and, and yeah, as it was happening versus now, as you say, we, we look back through the, the memory of it, we sometimes read a bit more in than we realize we had at the time. Yeah, you know, again, I was much younger at this time. So I don't think I, my approach to starting and building companies now is informed by both the mistakes and also the lessons learned along the way. When I look back at, at what we were doing, and again, this is, this is pretty far back in the rearview mirror, but the thing that aligned us was our mission was trying to deliver a great experience for both homeowners and for, for home service professionals, right? And so then, then the question was like, well, how do we do that? Well, we, we make really effective matches. We make sure people are happy. Like we, it was a pretty narrow mission at that time, but it, it focused us on doing the, the activities that, that helped us to deliver a great experience for both sides of the market. So as you look when you're, you know, now we're, we're far further ahead. You've seen a lot happen in a lot of different marketplaces and, and then we get to brain trust. As you founded and came up with this idea with the brain trust, again, like what was the, what were the first days? When did the idea come and, and how did, how did you and the team say, okay, we're, we've got something. Uh, we know we've got a fully digital marketplace to prepare. Uh, you know, how do we then, you know, take that first approach in those first few steps? Yeah. So I'll kind of give a little bit of the Genesis story for brain trust. So like I said, I was investing in advising and a lot of different marketplaces across all these different industries, um, from, from ride sharing to, you know, to, to insurance and, and kind of everything in between. And and when you, when you operate with all of these different marketplaces, you, you start to see patterns. And, and one of them is, of course, that like these business models, while they're very difficult to start, have become like the dominant business models over the last 20 years. And so it's, it's clear that these things can become very, very powerful as they develop like proprietary network effects. But you also see kind of some of the, I'll say the cracks in the armor. And so when you, when you look at these marketplaces, there's a couple of kind of core problems that, that seem to be prevalent across all of them. Number one is that they are very, very difficult and capital intensive to build liquidity. So they require raising an enormous amount of money, like billions of dollars to be able to effectively build you know, a, a nationwide scale marketplace that has liquidity what that can deliver this great experience to both sides, right? So that, that comes with a whole bunch of challenges, right? When you have to go and raise that much capital, it's very dilutive. Um, and then the, the second thing is, is almost as a result of that, what happens is that when they start to get to scale, the, because they're largely investor owned, what happens is they start to tax the users and basically levy these huge taxes on the users in the form of a rake. Now, whether that's Uber having a 30% take rate or, or you know, Amazon Marketplace having a 55% take rate, they start to extract all of this value on the backs of the users, right? And what that does is it puts the users at odds with the operator. 
right? The drivers hate Uber, the people selling on Amazon hate Amazon, and that's not sustainable, right? Like you can't build a, a long-term sustainable business when your customers hate you. Does that make sense, Eric? Yeah, it does. And it's, and it's, it's interesting too, because we, I think once there, this is when you approach the sort of monopoly level of coverage, they get very aggressive with the ability to just uh, put aside the customer experience, even though, I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff. Amazon's a great example. I'm a longtime user partner as a technology yep. vendor, but we also know like it's, I worked for an insurance company for, for 10 years. They're not in the business of giving away insurance. They're in the business of profiting off of insurance. It's a bet. And as I said, the, the use of the word rake is probably the most appropriate, right? In the end, the house has to always win or at least get a piece of the action. And statistically, it's always going to work in the favor of the house. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting that you brought that in. On the investor side, because uh, a lot of folks, when they hear about startups, they see you know, these great funding rounds, they see all this stuff. But maybe, if you don't mind, just, I'd love to get your the sort of quick startup funding lesson on, you know, what does that look like when you take that first round? What does it really mean? Because people see these, these valuations, they see all this, they see dollar signs. And if they're not really aware of, so it's a really tricky impact inside the business and especially going forward as you take those, those funding rounds. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I think that people are congratulatory around fundraising rounds, partially maybe like it, it's a marker in a company's history. Right. And it's a, it's kind of a public acknowledgement that somebody's building something of value. So I understand why that happens, but like if you peel back the layers of the onion, like nobody really congratulates people on getting loans, right? And that's essentially what this is, is it's, it's a loan. And in most cases, the, the company's actually not worth that much. It's, it's, the, it's essentially a, a valuation, let's say 18 to 24 months into the future, that when they get that loan, they raise $20 million, they now need to backfill into that valuation, right? So it's a loan to go and build that a company that's worth that much in the next, let's say 18 to 24 months. Yeah, this is the the hard lesson of, of people, even when they say like, oh, it's great, you know, yeah, your company's worth X. Like, well, no, it's valued at that. If I sell it for less than that, until I reach that, we're all in trouble because the folks that gave you that loan, they have at least one X generally uh, rates against the uh, the initial monies. So you're, the worst is that you get folks that think that they see a company that gets sold and they think, oh, this is great. You know, company got sold for, you know, for 20, $24 million or whatever, you know, just pick a number, not realizing that they took you know, 41 million in funding. And so uh, <laughs> if you don't go along the, the past and you tack up revenues, it's not going to work out in the favor of the, the shareholders, which is the equity owning founders. And then of course the equity owning employees. That's right. That's right. I mean, listen, it doesn't make as good of headlines uh, when you write those stories, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but certainly true, right? I mean, in the vast majority of situations, the the simple reality is that you know, 95% of startups fail. And, and there's a power law in, in the companies that are successful and that return capital. And it's a very, very small percentage that return the lion's share of returns. In a, in a common VC portfolio, it may be one company out of, you know, 40 that return 90% of the returns, if not more of the fund. So it, I think that people, it, it's hard to grasp like what that venture math looks like um, and, and the true failure rate and the, and, the, and the success rate that then pays for all of the failures. And, and top that off with age of the funds, you know, there's, there's so many other factors that can roll in, in, in how things are going, especially we look at, what the world's gone through in the past, you know, what, you know, nine to 12 months and what's ahead. We're certainly not out of the woodwork for, for a while, but I'm starting to see the VC becoming active again. And, and if, if anything, I do hope it spawns the next generation of folks that are, Hey, look, I've maybe I've lost work or, or it's time to change 
you know, or they take an opportunity to do something better now that we've seen that the world is changing. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll see a lot of really exciting, very human forward businesses come out in the next couple of years as a result of what we've gone through. And if anything, I, I tried to look for like, what's the positive I could get out of this? I do hope that we really bring positive change and, and there are opportunities to do that. And technology is a great way to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was part of the genesis when we were, we were chatting about this, we got a little distracted, but we, that was part of the genesis for, for Brain Trust was, hey, we looked at this model, we looked at these kind of, looked at how powerful these two-sided marketplaces can become. And then you looked at the kind of the externalities that you've seen over this last decade, which is basically, you know, th these marketplaces become very valuable for, for a very small group of people, right? Um, and then, you know, the, the, essentially the users get screwed. So in Uber's case, I mean, they're an easy one to pick on, right? Uber essentially extracts this rake from all the drivers. They essentially depress the, the average minimum wage. And then they make 10 people in Silicon Valley decabillionaires that were already, you know, objectively probably wealthy. And so, so that's not sustainable. Like that's not a, that's that form of kind of extractionary capitalism is not sustainable. And there has to be a better way. And that's, that's frankly what, what inspired my co-founder and I to look at, um, to look at kind of like, what's the next generation of marketplaces? And, and how will they be owned? How will they be operated in a, in a fundamentally different way than this kind of web two marketplaces? And, and our belief was that the, the next generation of marketplaces will be owned and operated by the users versus you know, a, a centralized operator and sitting in the middle that's extracting huge fees. So we, we came up with this thesis kind of called a, we, what we call kind of the user-owned economy. And the belief was user-owned economies, user-owned marketplaces will grow faster and become more valuable than traditional web two marketplaces. And, and rather than, you know, raising huge billions of dollars of capital to do this, you incentivize the users to help grow the network and rather than extract huge fees on, on their backs um, and concentrate that ownership, you, you drop the fees as close to zero as possible and you distribute ownership and control to the users. So imagine a world where, you know, where Uber, where 60% of, of voting and control was owned by the drivers. Like how much, what kind of impact would that have had globally if, if those drivers had a, a voice and a say in the governance and the fee structure and things like that of Uber. I, I fundamentally believe that we'd be in a much, much, much better off. And so that's, that's why we decided to start Brain Trust. The, the category that we picked to start with was this kind of, I'll say narrow, but very deep category of, of connecting kind of Fortune 1000 companies that need access to highly skilled technical talent, engineers, product managers, designers. Um, with that technical talent all around the world. And so what we, what we do is essentially we match highly skilled technical talent with the large enterprises that need to hire them. And, and the network is, is owned and operated by the users. So we're the first, first people to do this where the talent will actually own and operate the network um, versus you know, some centralized corporation sitting in the middle and extracting value on the backs of the users. It, it really is amazing. Yeah. And even as you say, the, it's the ability to have ownership and sort of, I, I don't like the word control, but in a sense it, it is really, because even when we look in sort of in unionized environments, it unfortunately does not go in the favor of the, the worker. It goes in favor of the union leadership uh, who are always well compensated and paid and not necessarily working its way through the whole system. But this really truly is, a bi-directional win and and i i also i adore your the the description he said this is this is the way work should work and i like that's the most perfect way to describe it and and that simplicity uh it it's it's what we need you know this is really how it's supposed to work uh so it is nice so when you got started you know i'm, I'm curious your how long before you sort of did you and adam sit down and say you know we need to create a marketplace or here's the problem I've got to solve. And then what did that path look like until 
you you did that first i'll say the the yellow pad version of of brain trust yeah so um I, you know i credit credit my co-founder with this adam had been working on this thesis and and kind of business model um, starting in in early 2018 um he had, we've known each other for a long time he asked me to advise and 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 i actually said no um, but I said that I would co-found the company. Like I was just so excited about the ability to, or, or like the opportunity to essentially build the the next generation of marketplaces. And so I actually came on as a co-founder um, and we, we started doing customer development. We started interviewing a bunch of talent. We started interviewing a bunch of the, the enterprises and we started really kind of digging into the business model and saying, how, how would this actually work in, in a more practical way? Like, how would you build a two-sided marketplace that solves, you know, the challenges of both sides? And then also, how would you build a, you know, a governance system, a voting system um, that enabled the users to actually vote on things like fee structure and roadmap and product features? Um, and how could you kind of democratize the, the, the governance of a, of a two-sided marketplace? And so we spent you know, I will say the better part of the summer doing that. And then, and then we went out to go and raise a seed round. We raised about $6 million in the seed round from some great investors here in Silicon Valley. And then actually started building it. So we, we spent the better part of 2019 building the platform um, and starting to onboard all the first talent um, and, and seed the network with the first talent. And then, uh, and then went into invite only beta in, in beginning part of January uh, of, of 2020 and came out of the gates really strong. And then, you know, the COVID pandemic hit in, in you know, mid, mid March. And frankly, it was a scary time, right? As, as an early stage startup, um, it, we just had like every single enterprise on the planet jammed on the brakes as they feared, you know, maybe, maybe our stocks go to zero, right? Like maybe right. this is really this black swan event. And so that next couple months was was rough for us, um, and and the, I would say that the course wasn't wasn't clear. And then all of a sudden, in the beginning of June, like the, the phone started ringing again, and all of these big enterprises started saying, "Hey, remember when we talked to you before?" And like we, you know, the biggest barrier to us was like butts and seats, right? We we like we knew that we needed access to highly skilled tech talent and we're in, you know, Omaha or St. Louis or wherever our offices are. Um, and, and like, you know, we, we, but we wanted people to come and work in our offices. Well, Hey, guess what? We can't even get into our offices anymore. And so that, that barrier has now been removed. And in addition to that, we need to like pivot our business models, right? We need to go from selling in retail to selling in e-commerce. We need to accelerate our digital transformation that was, you know, five years to like, you know, 12 months. And so it created this incredible kind of wind in the sales where we got, and we got a hundred inbounds from enterprises in one month. Incredible. And we could just start, that was the turning point where we just like, we could barely keep up with demand and it's just been on fire ever since with these large enterprises, you know, a few a week, like very, very large enterprises coming aboard and going live on the platform. Everyone from, I mean, we got you know, big organizations like NASA to Nike and Nestle and Porsche um, and, and, you know, multiple companies in, in every category. When did you know that you were, it was going to be okay? Because uh, even in those first, when those first bunch of calls come in, there's probably a real sense of, you know, are we all going to be able to adapt both as a platform, a team, and ultimately can our customers really and truly adapt to this, this new wave and will it continue? Yeah, listen, I, I think that, uh, I think we saw, started to see a big change in there in June. Um, and then we started to see the impact of that started to happen in July, where all these like new projects and new roles and things like that started to go live on the platform. And we started to see all the people get hired on the platform. That was kind of a, a big turning point was June and July of this year. And then it's just been on fire since then. And, and obviously we just did another fundraising round and, and raised another $20 million to help move it forward even faster. And uh, I'll say, just, just based on our last conversation, I'll say congratulations, not on the funding, but on the the trajectory and the reason why the funding was put there. And, and really and truly because 
I, I see the beautiful two-sided positive effect of what you can do. Number one, we're seeing the opportunity for organizations to get access to people, especially in a difficult time. And then to those people who maybe didn't realize what potential was out there, this is a huge opportunity to really empower people to find their future and, and do so in a way that really is meant to positively affect both sides of the market. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of a big driver for us here is, is this belief that, you know, while, while talent is equally distributed around the world, opportunity is not. And so what, what really excites me is, is the ability to bring opportunity to, to people around the world that they wouldn't normally have access to. So, you know, great examples are, you know, maybe amazing engineers or developers that are getting to work on projects for NASA and Nestle and, and, and big brands that they wouldn't normally have access to. And, and that just like lights me up. I, I love that idea. And, and also I, I love the business model, which is, you know, that the, the talent now gets to keep a hundred percent of what they own and they get to earn, you know, ownership and control in, in, in brain trust. And I just, I love th that kind of paradigm shift and the impact that it's having on talent around the world. It is, uh, ownership is a fantastic thing, right? It's, it's ultimately why we use equity as a, a way to incent people uh, to come do small startups is like, hey, look, you can, you can literally affect the outcome of the, your value here uh, in a monetary sense. If, if we do great things, you will reap the benefits. Uh, so it's beautiful that you can do that and people don't necessarily to have yeah, to do that long form leap of faith that you go to a startup for. Yeah. And, you know, to, to also to, to just clarify, like when, when I say ownership, I don't mean like a claim on profits. No, no, um, no. Sorry. Yeah, what, yeah. I, what I mean is like, you know, governance and control and being able to actually have a voice and vote on, you know, product features and, and you know, and, and roadmap, things like that. And that I think that the people that are building their businesses and running their businesses on a, on a network or on a marketplace should have a voice and, and have a say in the decisions of that, of that marketplace. Right. Yeah. And I thought I, I, I ended up connecting the two a little too closely, but yeah, truly, but that in that sense, that is the, the ability to affect the outcome because if I'm using the platform as a, as a, as a provider of services and, you know, I'm a staffer, looking for for a role i know that if it works i can find somebody else who's going to be able to make use of it and i can say hey this worked this didn't work like to be able to actually influence the outcome is a really a great opportunity for people that are in those platforms versus like you said you get the these large you know marketplaces which are purely you know, they're, they're zero touch and they're also zero heart <laughs> once they're at a certain scale. You got it. Now the, everything that you've done really and truly has a strong people side of it. I'm curious where that, that actually came from, Gabe. How did you, how did you come to be somebody that really wanted to do something for other people because it really comes out in the way you describe even the system that you describe it it's very much very people and human focused yeah i mean listen i i i grew up on a matriarchal hippie commune to you know to a mom that was an artist and and you know a teacher and my father ran started and ran nonprofits. so i, I refer to him as kind of a social entrepreneur so growing up, you know, my, my examples from my parents were, were that, you know, you can work independently, right? You can, you can chart your own course and, and you don't necessarily have to go get a traditional job. And also that like the work that you do in the world is meaningful and, and that like how you contribute your time to trying to make the world a better place, depending on what that means to you, is something that's really important. So it's always been, I think, part of what's driven me to be so interested in, in marketplaces is because I, I have this belief that essentially they connect people and also they can distribute opportunity more, more fair and equitably around the world. And, and that is, I find that to be incredibly motivating and, and something that I can be really proud of when I look back on, on my life. 
Now you have the 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 fun and not fun title of chief revenue officer, uh, and in doing that, ultimately, I love to even go back to that those first days at Modernize or throughout. And as you advise folks that go through that first scaling, I, I it's I would sense that growing the sales organization is probably one of the most challenging ones to do because of the very non-linear fashion of the way that enterprise sales and, and, and B2B and B2C goes. I'm just curious on some of your lessons, uh, especially the hard ones that you had to pick up in those, those first days and, and since then. Yeah, I mean, I, I, of course, it's a, it's a topic for an entire podcast, but I'll, I'll try to give some, uh, some lessons learned along the way, which is, you know, in the early days of, of trying to go out there and, and sell to customers or, or bring customers on board, it's, it's really unknown whether people are actually going to see the value, right? Um, or whether you have something that is of value to them. And so I think that's one of the hardest parts when you're first starting is, is essentially validating that people aren't just like nodding their head and saying, yeah, that sounds nice, but they actually are, are motivated and incentivized to, to buy a product or use a service. And so that's probably what we spent a lot of the time on in the early days was essentially understanding the customers, understanding their pain points and challenges and problems and, and understanding what they would need to be able to use a service or a product like ours. And so in, in the process of you know, learning, we were able to, I think, build some great relationships with the early customers and, and have, you know, have folks like Nestle and Deloitte and folks like that uh, you know, join on the platform. It, it, it is a real, I've got an incredible respect, especially for those like, like pre-product sales leaders. You know, like you really have to, they are truly there in a, by belief in the mission and the potential to execute with a product, a platform, a service, whatever it's going to be. So it's always an amazing thing to watch. And it's, I mean, it's no accident that there are folks that specialize in that area because they, they've seen it through a few times. And because they're early, they you know, generally are sort of have seen the bounty of, of equity as a result, which is good and it's deserved. Uh, but when you're bringing those first folks on, how do you kind of choose those, those people that will, will fit your organization? Yeah. So there's, I think there's a great article. I think it's an, actually an HBS study that they did kind of looking at the different types of, of salespeople that you would need for different stages of a company. And, and they refer to this kind of like four core phases. The, the first one is what they call kind of the Renaissance rep. And then the last one is the, they refer to the term as, as like the, the coin operated. So <laughs> The, the point is like in, in the beginning, it's just filled with uncertainty and doubt. And, and like, you haven't, you don't, you haven't proved that you can actually you know, sell this new product or service to the market. You haven't validated that people want it. It's certainly not repeatable in any sort of way. And so the person that's, that's oftentimes really successful in the early days of being a salesperson is, is obviously someone that's highly influential, someone that's very curious and also driven and motivated, but they're very, they, they're comfortable with the uncertainty of not having everything fully baked and not having a playbook and not having, you know, scripts and objection handling guides and like all the things that would be a part of a more formal sales organization. And so I think depending on the stage of, of the company, you hire really different people with different skill sets and different personalities. Um, one of the, the kind of the big lessons that you learn is, or that I've learned is hiring the right person, but for the wrong stage of the company. And I've, I've made that step, you know, I've made that mistake a couple of times uh, where, where you end up hiring kind of the, the person that's an amazing salesperson, but they only do well in environments where they have, where it's fully baked, right? Like where there's a fully baked system and process and structure for them to go and go out and, and execute on. Right. And, uh, and so I think it's, 
you know, it's a common kind of misunderstanding as early stage founders is to think like, oh, I'm an early stage founder. I should go and hire this great salesperson from Salesforce. And it's like wrong, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, wrong decision for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is is obviously that that person's used to having a huge amount of of you know marketing support. They're used to working and selling for a massive brand versus a a startup that no one cares about. Yeah, it's having seen this one play out uh, in my own organization and others that I've advised as well. It's it, it is incredible because you can see like amazing people. Like you said, it's not a it's not a failure of the person. It's a failure of the match of the person to the maturity or phase or stage of the company. And I've seen that too. Where uh, I think as Eric Reese describes it in Lean Startup, he says what you end up with is that a lot of people come from these sort of the big oracles of the world, and then they decide to, to, to create a startup and they get lost in this, like, I'm going to recreate what was working before. And I said, the whole reason you left that large organization was because of the mud and the challenge and the, the, the stuff you wanted to get past. So why would you then go and recreate it? And thus that sort of lean, you know, and then as they go through phases, it will, will change. And I've seen fantastic salespeople and developers and, and and marketing teams who yeah they get brought into a company and you just expect like well they, they just came from from vmware and they're and they're huge like well yeah they started when they were huge and so they they don't know what growth looks like they just know what being successful at scale already looks like sure yeah if you had to go back and you know how often do you spend your own reflection time because uh, you've got a lot of lessons that you've brought into yourself and as an advisor into a lot of organizations. How do you get from, how do you reconcile your time when it comes to active work uh, and then going back and, and reflecting and, and taking those lessons and pulling them out? Yeah, so I think I've kind of gotten to a place where I have a, a schedule for me is you know, some t definitely a, a day. Sometimes I can get up to a, a day and a half per week. That's like unstructured time where I have no meetings, no kind of, I'll say like direct uh, responsibility that day. And then I pack my other days with meetings. So it's, it's kind of like the, the mix of big thinking, strategizing time, reflecting time matched with, you know, more like down in the weeds working time. And so I, I find, and that, that mix is different for every entrepreneur. And it's obviously different based on kind of the stage of the company. Um, but what I find is like, you know, that's a good balance for me is, is kind of like a few days that are really, you know, intense work days from beginning to end scheduled back to back. And, and then a couple of days where I, I can take more time to reflect. It is really hard to context switch, and and we unfortunately as humans have an un, uh, a disturbing belief that we're good at it, and we're actually, we're just not. <laughs> it's like multitasking, it's like all these things. Uh, so I admire that, you know, when you see somebody like yourself who's recognized, like, hey, this is the way that that the human mind works, especially my own. Uh, I'm going to have to structure my week accordingly to be the most effective in both sides of that brain, which is, I, I think, one of the things, especially in a startup, it's hard to get that reflection time because there's just so many, so many, you know, irons in the fire and, and things that are always kind of very active and, and mobile. Sure. If you were, you know, and I, I wouldn't mind, let's talk about Upshift and, and what you're doing there. And when you started working, on the capital side, you know, how did you choose where the right place was that you wanted to be able to help people and in that side of the, the business? Yeah, so I, I focus specifically on on two-sided marketplaces uh, within the fund. And, and then the stage that I oftentimes focused on was I'll say be post seed or pre-series A or, or right after series A was there was a kind of a level of maturity and a certain level of things that had kind of been figured out at that point. Um, but everything wasn't fully baked yet. So it was kind of a, a stage where you had, I, I kind of look at these four core phases that startups go through. 
um, the first phase is like incubation, which is, you know, shaping an idea, seeing if there's a there there. Then the next stage is kind of validation, which is, you know, going out and getting the first customers, getting the first people on the platform, whatever it may be, um, kind of reducing some of the, the risk and validating some of the core assumptions of the business. And then the, the next phase for me is, is like what I called the upshift phase, which is going is the stage between validation and scale. And, and all too often, you know, early stage startups mistake validation for being ready to scale. And so I, I thought there was this really interesting stage kind of in between those two where, where the things that you did to validate will not get you to scale, but you're not, you don't have that level of repeatability or predictability in scale. And I thought it was an interesting area where I could add a lot of value from all the, the mistakes that I had made along the road about how, how do you take something, how do you make it repeatable and predictable and, and get ready for the next stage of, of growth? Given that you're really focused on that and you've spent both personal time in achieving those phases and you're advising folks and going through those phases, what's the, how do you help people to sort of get through failures without regret, but with lessons? Because I'm curious in, it is a tough thing to go through and we all have to go through it, especially in when we're all in the startup landscape, you know, it's, it's an inevitability. Uh, so I'm, how do you kind of prepare people for the inevitable challenges that they will just have to face, but to carry themselves through that phase? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I have any, any amazing answers here. I think that re the reality of building a startup is that it's, filled with a lot of self-doubt. It's also filled with this linking of, of our value as entrepreneurs and who we are as entrepreneurs with how well the business is doing. And that, I understand why that happens, right? Like we're, we're pouring ourselves and our lives and our energy into something, but that can also be really dangerous when you, when you start to um, measure yourself and your, and your happiness and satisfaction in the world based on how well your startup is doing, which in many cases is, can be beyond your control or, or, you know, outside of things that you can actually influence. And that's, that's can be very, very dangerous for early stage founders. Um, if they don't have a, a, say a healthy perspective on, on the difference between company success and my own success and happiness as a, as an individual. Yeah, there's so many externalities that are impossible to be prepared for, or to, sorry, not, we, it's like they always say, like, a, a plans are useless, but planning is essential. <laughs> so, you know, we, we can be prepared for it. We may not survive it, but we can be prepared for, like I said, I, I call it sort of the inevitability of, of challenge. You uh, said at the very start. It, it was sort of naivete that that lets you get through that first phase. How how prevalent does that sort of innocence of the risk have to be present in a founder to be ready to truly go out on their own? Yeah. So I think that if, I was talking to a friend about this, and he was saying, do, you know, do entrepreneurs just have a higher tolerance for risk? And my response was actually, I don't think that there's necessarily a higher tolerance for risk. It's a different way that we assess risk. So most of the successful entrepreneurs that I know actually do quite a lot to reduce risk in their endeavors, but they just assess risk in a fundamentally different way. They look at the risk of doing nothing or the risk of just having a traditional job as greater than taking the risk of, of starting a company. Um, and obviously there's, there's a lot of different examples of that, but I, you know, I, I think that, I, I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. So in your, what prepared you in your own life and, and upbringing maybe, or, or, or school, I'm curious, you know, what most prepared you for that ability to measure and, and understand risk at a, at a founder's type of, of approach? 
Well, if I use myself as an example, when, when I was first starting my assessment of the risk of starting a company, especially as like a young person with no no family or, or you know, responsibilities to take care of in, in that respect, my assessment of risk was the worst thing that happens here is I learn a lot and I go and get a job. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is interesting. I, I guess people always say to you like, oh, you're, they're tired of all these like 30 under 30 stories. Like, well, that's when most people have the most ability to accept risk is because there's, there's less of their life that they're going to lose access to if you know, they, can, they can survive a failure a little easier than somebody who's who's you know further along in life and you know more financially impacted by a failure or or, or such so i'm hoping that there's a 50 under 50 category i'm aiming for that one so <laughs> if you could give advice to somebody as they think about taking an idea and doing that that yellow pad test what's the what's the thing that you most often tell people how do you really market validate what you what your idea will look like if you put it in front of people yeah so when i talk to the early stage founders i i typically advise them to look at the the biggest risks first so what are the risks that would essentially break the model so like if you were to write down the risks uh, or write down the assumptions, right? The assumptions that you have about who the customers are, why they want this, et cetera. If you essentially write those down and then you stack rank them and you kind of come up with, I'll say like the top three that are the, the most risky assumptions that, it, that like if those things are not, if those assumptions are wrong, breaks the business model, you have to change the business model. And then how quickly can you either prove or disprove those assumptions, right? So, so that can be done in a really lightweight way. And the example that I gave when I first started a marketplace, which was like grab yellow pads and notepads and go and walk around neighborhoods and just essentially validate that homeowners actually do want to find contractors, right? <laughs> and then essentially do the same. The second biggest risk was, hey, do contractors actually want to find homeowners and are they willing to pay for it? And like we, we validated those two things essentially in three days with four pens and four yellow notepads. And then we moved on to the other, you know, the other assumptions and risks that we had in the business, um, step by step, you know, one at a time. It's the, the old thing. How do you eat an elephant? One, one bite at a time, right? I, I, if you approach it that way, it's, it's good for us to step back and, and really lay it out. And, and you realize, the most complex things are made up of a bunch of simple steps. It's uh, just a matter of being able to stand back and, and visualize and, and put it down. And this is what the flow will look like. And just one last thing, I'd love to get your, your reflection, you know, as you're still on, on the board at Modernize and, and it's, you know, gone through this incredible growth and you're now in, in another full-fledged, you know, next phase of your own life. How does it feel now to sort of still be a part of and watch this incredible, you effectively birthed a child and now you're watching it in, and it's gotten through university and it's got its first job. You know, how does it feel as you continue to, to watch that ride occurring alongside you? Well, I would say if we were to use that analogy, it would be like you birthed a child, you took him to high school, you took him to college and now they've like gone off and gotten married. Uh, so, so that company was acquired earlier this year and, uh, and, you know, found a great home for it. And, and also, you know, everyone, everyone, you know, all the employees and stuff did, did quite well there. And so, you know, it feels great to see some closure there and also to see it have a, a great outcome for everyone that was involved. And, you know, and then, then you focus on the next things and, and focus on what you want to build next, which for me is just a hundred percent focused on on building brain trust and, and, you know, essentially developing what we're calling the user-owned economy. Yeah. And, and I think this is what's, what's beautiful and I'll encourage folks to do. So we'll have links in, in the show notes as well. Um, so you've got a, a great team, you've got a great mission. Uh, and thank you, as I said, for really creating opportunity for people to, to get connected, especially in trying times that we're in. Uh, but even outside of that, 
it's a fantastic opportunity for people to get involved. Uh, and I know, you know, I was just doing a, a call for a recruiter earlier and it sort of reminded me, I'm like, good golly, this is, this system is so challenged. And, and then what I knew we were going to talk is that how apropos that here I am giving a reference call for the, one of the most old school methods of trying to connect people. And meanwhile, you know, uh, brain trust is, is really changing the game. So I, uh, I wish you the best of successes in, in what's ahead for you and the team. Thanks so much. Great for, uh, thanks for having me on Eric. Yeah. Thanks Gabe. And, uh, so folks, of course they do want to find out, we can go to, uh, usebraintrust.com. Like I said, links will be in the show notes and, uh, and I'm looking forward to the, the next phase of, of that growth and for all of us to be in a, in a place where we can maybe get back to those offices again and, and hopefully brain trust will get you there. Thanks so much, Eric. Take good care. Thanks.